0: Some of the most riveting moments in history happen when two wildly different worlds meet for the first time. Today, one of the most common tropes in our books and movies is first contact with some alien species from another world. But science fiction doesn't have to speculate too hard about what mankind's response to that moment might be like, because we already know. For much of the world's history, people with differing values, languages, cultures, and religion were largely separated by the sheer size of the world. But as technology advanced and the world began to shrink, these often conflicting cultures started to collide into each other. Oftentimes, that collision was violent. By the 1850s, Japan had managed to hold the world at bay for centuries, isolating itself in its secluded string of islands, but some were not content to let it stay closed off forever. A brand new nation, the United States of America, decided to take action to bring Japan out of its shell, and they were willing to use force to do it. The American Commodore placed in charge of this expedition pulled his terrifying black warships into the forbidden waters of Edo Bay, which is today Tokyo Bay. He turned his guns toward the Japanese cities lining the shore and demanded Japan open its doors. The showdown between these two alien worlds began. This week in history, we backtrack 163 years to March 31st, 1854, to look at the arrival of Commodore Perry's black ships to Japan and the signing of the Treaty of Kanagawa. Hey, welcome to Backtrack History. My name is Stu. Okay, so before I start talking about today's subject, I really need to admit something. This podcast has a lot to do with this beautiful and wonderful, very complex and cloistered culture that existed in Japan between the 15th and 19th centuries. Unfortunately, I do not personally speak Japanese, and despite my best efforts, I can absolutely promise that I'm going to do a severe disservice to many beautiful Japanese words and names, and so if any of you out there are more familiar with the Japanese language than I am, which is likely a lot of you, please forgive my mispronunciations. So that being said, let's talk about what happened. In 1841, a 14-year-old fisherman named Manjiro and four of his friends set off in a small fishing boat, A sudden storm caught them by surprise, blowing them far from the shore. Their small boat was torn apart by the angry ocean. The five boys washed up on a small, uninhabited island roughly 250 miles south of Japan. But being shipwrecked was not their biggest worry. They knew that if they were to return to Japan, they could be executed. For over two centuries, Japan had sealed itself off from the outside world. Manjiro and his friends had been raised hearing terrifying tales of the barbarians who lived outside of their home islands. They were violent, savage, held dangerous and strange religious beliefs. To insulate the country from the corruption of such backward people, a strict law had been put into place. All other nations were warned in the sternest possible terms to stay away from Japanese waters. No foreigner was permitted to enter the country, and no Japanese person was allowed to leave. Any Japanese who dared leave and returned on a foreign ship would be immediately put to death. Manjiro and his friends, by sheer accident, had broken this rigid, long-standing rule, and they were now without a country. But returning to Japan wasn't really an option for them anyway. They were cast away on this barren volcanic island for five months months, these boys endured desperate trials, eating whatever they could find, eating shellfish and whatever birds they could manage to catch, and they drank rainwater. This grim fight to survive was interrupted when a giant ship, the American whaler John Howland, anchored off the island. Instead of being relieved at a potential rescue, the boys were terrified remembering these legends of the violent barbarians they'd grown up hearing. So the boys initially hid from the strange men with fur on their faces, but at length the American sailors managed to coerce the boys onto the ship. The captain of the Howland was a man named William Whitfield. Whitfield apologetically told the boys he'd be unable to return them to Japan because they were behind schedule and he needed to get to Honolulu. But really, both he and the boys knew that if Whitfield attempted to take them home, he was risking his ship and crew. And the boys would likely have been executed for his effort anyway. So without any other option, the five of them sailed with the John Howland toward Hawaii. En route, Whitfield and Monjiro bonded. Manjiro was genial, curious. He was naturally intelligent and energetic. You just get the feeling like he had this zest for life. Everybody that met him seemed to be kind of taken with him. He quickly started to pick up English and was fascinated by the workings of the ship. Whitfield was a kind man who was entertained by Manjiro's inquisitiveness and was empathetic to his plight. Whitfield started calling the boy John, and Manjiro embraced his new American name. When the Howland reached Honolulu, Manjiro's four friends disembarked, determined to make a new life for themselves, but Manjiro asked to stay with Whitfield, who happily agreed. Upon returning to Fairhaven, Massachusetts, Whitfield's family adopted John Manjiro as their own. The Whitfields afforded every courtesy to their new Japanese son— Very few Asians had ever been seen along the American East Coast at the time, and absolutely no Japanese. One Sunday, the Whitfields and Manjiro were attending church services. The pastor eyed Manjiro sitting next to the Whitfields, and he insisted that John sit in the Negro section in the back of the church. William and his wife were appalled, and they left. They soon found a more tolerant congregation who allowed the family to sit together. With his natural curiosity, Manjiro dove into his studies. He mastered English, he learned navigation and coopering, for a time he even studied at Oxford. His understanding of the world outside of Japan had been completely shattered. But he never forgot Japan, his mother and his brothers and sisters, who must now think he was dead. He resolved one day to return. Returning was going to be pretty dangerous, though. Japan had been settled in seclusion for generations, for centuries, and it seemed determined to remain that way. Their reasons for their isolation were deeply embedded in their history and their cultural and national identity. Their self-imposed exile primarily had to do with religion. Japan's religion, like most cultures throughout history, was inextricably intertwined with his culture and government. As an example of this, in 1274, the terrifying Mongol Empire set its targets on Japan. They amassed this huge fleet of black painted warships to invade the islands. But as they started to get underway, a sudden violent storm arose. Some of the Mongol fleet was lost, and the rest were forced to turn back to China. Seven years later, the Mongols tried again. This time, as their fleet was navigating Japanese waters, another intense storm suddenly slammed into the black ships. They were battered against coastal rocks, and most of them sank. Over 100,000 of the Mongols' initial 140,000-man army drowned. The rest of the Mongol army was easily mopped up by the Japanese samurai. Ever after this event, the Japanese looked on both of these incidents, both of these failed Mongol invasions, as divine intervention. They reverently called the storms that had driven the Mongols back the divine winds, the protection of the gods bestowed upon the chosen people of Japan. The legend was etched in Japanese consciousness so deeply that centuries later, when another nation was threatening to invade Japan in a bloody war, young Japanese pilots started sacrificing themselves in suicidal attacks in an attempt to turn back the enemy. The pilots were named after this miraculous storm that had protected them from the Mongols. They were called the Divine Wind Pilots, or in Japanese, Kamikaze. The miracle of the kamikaze was not the only evidence to the Japanese that they were favored of the gods. Japan's state religion was Shinto, which was an ethnic religion that really emphasized balance and connection with nature, worship of ancestors, and that kind of thing. According to Shinto belief, the emperor of Japan was a direct descendant of the sun goddess herself, a living son of deity. The emperor, in practice, held little power. Consider him kind of similar to like modern-day British royalty. But his role as a divine leader of Japan served to unify the Japanese people in this collective national identity. Japan's government was ruled for much of its history by local leaders called daimyo, who ruled over individual sections of the country, much like feudal lords in Europe. They collected their own taxes and hired their own militaries from a professional warrior class called the samurai. You might have heard of them. But the daimyo paid tribute and gave loyalty to the emperor and the true leader of Japan, the shogun. The shogun was a hereditary leader who acted more or less as a king over the entire nation. In practice, the shogun reported to no one, but according to Japanese tradition, he ruled at the pleasure of the emperor. So the emperor was the figurehead and the shogun was the actual power. Japan's belief in the emperor's divinity made Shintoism and loyalty to the state just indelibly intertwined. Church and state weren't separate, they were one and the same thing. It was central to their cultural identity, and when that identity was challenged, there was a huge backlash. You're probably familiar with the Age of Discovery. Between the 15th and 18th centuries, explorers, who were mostly European, but there were some notable exceptions, like the Chinese treasure fleets, they started to spread across the planet. This era kickstarted the rush to explore, establish trade routes, and most infamously, to colonize. For the Europeans, All of this was done under the banner of Christianity, and everywhere the Europeans went, they were determined to introduce their religion to the natives. The first Europeans to arrive in Japan were Portuguese. Explorers were followed by merchants who were followed by missionaries. Initially, Japan welcomed the new trade warmly. They had been trading with China, Korea, and other Asian nations for centuries, and they welcomed the new and interesting goods these strange Europeans were bringing to them. Within a few years, a taste for European clothing and style stormed across Japan, and both European merchants and Japanese port cities started to see this huge windfall from new trade. They were growing rich. Portuguese missionaries were meeting with similar success. Christianity, primarily Catholicism because, you know, Portuguese, was avidly embraced by the curious Japanese. The leader of Japan at the time, the famous shogun Oda Nobunaga, sanctioned the new religion. Within a mere 80 years of the Portuguese arrival, it's estimated that around a half million Japanese, 10% of the population, had converted to Catholicism. This was, in part, a pragmatic decision rather than a religious one, though. Europeans were more likely to do business with local leaders who had embraced Christianity. Daimyo would often force their entire households of families and servants to be baptized. In a couple of cases, the daimyo even commanded entire cities to embrace Catholicism, all to draw the attention and wallets of the Europeans. Part of the reason the Christians found such success in Japan was in the inherent differences between Eastern religious thought and Western doctrines. Shinto, like Buddhism and most other Eastern religions, tended to incorporate other religious ideas, not compete with them. So many Japanese were actually Buddhist. But they saw no problem in also believing in Shintoism and in the emperor's divinity. So, for many of the Japanese who adopted Christianity, it didn't occur to them that Christian dogma might supplant or erase other beliefs. The local Buddhist and Shinto monks welcomed the missionaries warmly until they started to realize that the Christians intended to displace all other faiths. The European missionaries weren't exactly known for moderation or meekness. They're kind of famous in history for that. One of the most successful missionaries was a Spanish priest named Francis Xavier, who reached Japan in the summer of 1549. His efforts there became so legendary and were so highly praised by the Catholic Church that he was eventually beatified, and today he is considered by the Catholics to be the patron saint of Japan. Xavier's approach, pretty common for Catholic and Protestant missionaries of the time, was strident and dismissive of Japan's traditional religions. Xavier's style was noted by historian George Fiverr. Here's what he said Xavier made no effort to understand the religions that were in place when he arrived. The soon to be saint saw them as Satan's work to be overthrown without compromise or sympathy. The troubling developments from the Christians became worse when the daimyo and the shogun realized that differing Christian sects condemned and competed with other Christian sects. So intense conflicts between, like, Catholics and Protestants started to arise. It even rose between different groups within the Catholic Church. Jesuits and Franciscans fought. The Japanese shogun became increasingly exasperated about the infighting within Christianity. The Japanese revered and worshipped their ancestors, and most were either unable or unwilling to believe in the Christian concept of hell that their forefathers were burning in misery and eternal punishment just because they hadn't had the chance to hear about Christianity. This disturbing idea seemed like sheer nonsense to them. The sacredness of a family's honor and heritage was a closely held belief within both Japanese religion and culture and was in direct contention with this fundamental Christian teaching. The Europeans were quickly spreading into all corners of the world, and the Japanese were awakening to the threat this posed. Their trepidation turned to alarm as Spain began to colonize the nearby Philippine islands, violently subjugating the archipelago's native peoples and the process. Japan began restricting trade to specific southern ports, hoping to stem the flow of European influence into the country. One Spanish sea captain was angry that he was being turned away from a now-closed port, so he warned the local officials that if Japan continued to resist Spain, they may end up like the Philippines. To add pressure to his threat, the captain showed the Japanese officials, who were kicking him out, a map of the Spanish conquests around the world. The map was dotted with Spanish-controlled colonies on virtually every continent. Alarmed, the officials asked him how Spain had been able to attain this sprawling worldwide empire. He told them that countries marked for conquering were softened first by the introduction of Christian missionaries. And here's what he said, quote, and when they have made considerable progress, troops are sent with not much trouble. Quote. The growing Japanese suspicion of Christianity became realized when word reached the Shogun that Christian preachers were teaching that spiritual authority, the authority of Catholic priests and bishops, superseded the authority of daimyo or even the Shogun. But that was not even the worst of it. According to the Christian preachers, the followers of Jesus were to believe in only the Christian God and no one else. Xavier's insistence that Shinto, Buddhism, and other closely held beliefs were Satan's work had a particularly insidious ramification for the Japanese because their emperor was a god. Christians refused to believe that the sacred emperor of Japan, the descendant of the sun goddess herself, was divine. They dismissed him as a pretender, a fake. No belief could have been better designed to subvert and damage Japanese society than this Christian belief. When the shogun learned of these dangerous Christian doctrines, he declared that missionaries were, quote, pernicious, most undesirable. He expelled all foreign missionaries from Japanese shores, forbidding them to return. Initially, only the European preachers were forbidden, but Christianity had begun to degrade Japan's entire social structure, and conflicts increasingly arose between Japanese Christians and the local daimyo. Clearly, something had to be done, and Japan had just been given a shogun willing to take drastic steps to fix the problem of Christianity. In the early years of the 17th century, a new family rose to power in the shogunate and began the Tokugawa dynasty. The third shogun of the dynasty, whose name was Tokugawa Iemitsu, instituted draconian measures to quell any further outside contamination into Japanese culture. Not content with just the expulsion of the foreign missionaries, the new shogun outlawed Christianity entirely. Any person who would not repudiate their beliefs was executed. But this was only the warm-up. In 1635, he issued what's known as the Sakoku Edict. Sekoku, in Japanese, means closed country, though I've seen some interpreters say it meant country in chains, which, frankly, is much cooler. The edict barred all Europeans from entering into Japan and officially ended trade with pretty much all foreign nations. It instituted strict penalties for the practice of Catholicism and other forms of Christianity, and even offered a bounty for those willing to turn in Christians practicing in secret. The edict forbade all Japanese from leaving the country under pain of death. Japan's brief exposure to the outside world had been extremely destabilizing, and Tokugawa was doing all he could to deny any more foreign corruption. Two years later, a peasant rebellion began to ferment in and around Nagasaki, which is in the southern part of Japan. It's known to history as the Simabara Revolt. The revolt happened to take place in the south, where Christianity had been most prevalent. When they began to revolt against the government, the Christians, who had been hiding, felt free to come out of hiding, and when they met Japanese troops in battle, they made battle cries to Jesus and Mary while wearing crucifixes and crosses. The revolt was not religious in nature. Like most moments of civil unrest, it had more to do with access to food and a sluggish economy. But seeing the brazenness of the Christians among the rebels convinced Tokugawa that it had been a religious uprising. The Shogun's forces demolished the rebels, and nearly some 37,000 people were killed. Thousands of the dead were thrown into this giant mass grave. The Shogun directed that a sign be hung over it. Here's what it said. Quote, So long as the sun shall warm the earth... "...let no Christian be so bold as to come to Japan, and let all know that the king of Spain himself, or the Christian's God, if he violate this command, shall pay for it with his head." Quote. So they felt pretty strongly about it, and Japan started to recede in the world's view. They only traded with China, Korea, and interestingly enough, Holland of all places— The Dutch were generally anti-Catholic, which was welcome news to the Japanese, but even better, they were considered this unassertive trading country content to mind their own business. Still, no Dutchman was allowed to even enter the country itself. They were secluded to this tiny little island outside of Nagasaki. All trade was limited to the single port of Nagasaki, and it was carefully monitored by local authorities. In isolation, Japan had something of a cultural renaissance. With Tokugawa's strict social order and extreme isolationist foreign policy in place, the country began to see this great deal of economic growth, and with it, a flourishing of arts, drama, music, and other cultural achievements. The nation remained at peace for what one historian has suggested is the longest single period of peace any civilization has ever experienced in all of humanity's history, which is a pretty big claim. It seemed that putting the nation in chains was going great. So for over 200 years, Japan remained solitary and aloof. To the outside world, a mystique rose around this exotic, mysterious nation, but they also perceived it as backward and cowardly. Even in Holland, Japan's lone European trading partner, very little was known about the island nation and the people that inhabited it. Curiosities were piqued, and as the world grew, unwanted guests inevitably started knocking on Japan's door. As the 19th century dawned, Japan was still tightly tucked behind their laws and largely remained unaware that the outside world was changing radically. Occasionally, their Dutch trading buddies would bring them reports of what was happening elsewhere in the world, but Japan placidly ignored most of it, content to remain separate. And you can see why. It had really paid off for them. But the rest of the world was being remade in the Industrial Revolution, International trade, which had been a huge part of the global economy for centuries, exploded exponentially. New technologies resulted in new kinds of cloth, new style of clothes, new ways of transporting perishable goods, new machinery that made farming and industry more efficient. Faster, larger ships were built to deliver all of these goods across the world. The capital city of Japan was Edo, the city we now know as Tokyo. It had long held the distinction of being the largest city in the world, Though it's fairly unlikely any residents of Edo were actually aware of that fact at the time. But with all the new technology radically altering daily life across Europe and North America, populations were exploding around the world. London shot by Edo in size, quickly becoming the largest city in the world, and Paris and other European centers of industry were not far behind. Unsettlingly, Japan started to feel the results of these changes. The number of foreign ships spotted from Japan's shores seemed to be growing exponentially. Fishing, and especially whaling, had progressed to this industrial scale in the mid-1800s. Russian, British, and American whaling ships were constantly trawling the stormy waters off of Japan's northern islands in pursuit of precious whale oil, and apparently there were just a ton of whales in that area. Most alarming to the Japanese was the increase in traders and official diplomats trying to gain entry into Nagasaki and elsewhere. They were hoping that they could talk them out of this centuries-old Seikoku policy. Within a 75-year period, Japan turned away 72 ships. By 1807, 10 of those ships had been sent by the newly established United States of America. Japan just rejected them all. But as more ships came, the shogun determined to enact sterner measures. In 1824, he instituted the Edict to Repel Foreign Vessels, which directed the Japanese to drive away foreign ships by any necessary means. It soon became casually known as Shell and Repel. The Edict reiterated that all foreigners who landed on Japanese soil must be arrested or killed. The shogun reminded his people why that was necessary. Quote, all southern barbarians and westerners, not only the English, worship Christianity that wicked cult prohibited in our land. Henceforth, whenever a foreign ship is sighted approaching any point on our coast, all persons on land should fire on and drive it off, never be caught off guard. End quote. During this time, Japan maintained a thriving fishing economy, but to be a fisherman was kind of a dangerous proposition. The government had long forbidden the construction of boats large enough to sail across the ocean. That meant that the further a Japanese fisherman ventured from the shore in pursuit of fish, the less safe their small fishing junks became. The junks, which were usually flat bottomed and had this really shallow draft, could not handle rough water well at all. Which is exactly why Manjiro ended up getting shipwrecked. In 1837, the American merchant ship Morrison stumbled upon some shipwrecked Japanese fishermen on a small island off the coast of China. The Japanese sailors were hesitant to return to Japan on a foreign ship, knowing that they could be executed. But the Americans saw in the castaways another opportunity to try to ingratiate themselves with the Japanese and maybe talk them into opening up for trade. So with the six Japanese men on board, the Morrison confidently set sail for Edo. When they neared the town of Uraga, which is near the mouth of Edo Bay, a shore battery opened fire on them without warning. The captain of the Morrison turned his ship around as fast as he could and left. Reports of the incident eventually reached Washington, D.C., which was infuriating to the Americans. So the Japanese would fire on an unarmed, peaceful ship trying to return its own citizens, it was kind of stupefying to them. But the Americans would have more chance for outrage. So in 1846, five years after Manjiro was rescued, the American whaler Lawrence was caught in a violent gale and sank. Seven of the crew managed to survive and clung to wreckage until they finally washed ashore Japan's northern coast. The American sailors were immediately arrested by the Japanese. One of the sailors reported his experience, quote, they threatened to cut off our heads because they thought we were English, whom they hate. But when we told them we were Americans, they said nothing more except to ask of us what religion we were. Upon our telling them we worshipped God and believed in Jesus Christ, they brought a cross bearing the image of our Savior, and had we not tramped upon it at their request, they would have massacred us on the spot." Unquote. The sailors were eventually released to the Dutch, who returned them home to America, where their story drew ire at the barbaric and inhumane treatment they had suffered at the hands of the Japanese. In response to this Japanese treatment of the Lawrence survivors and the attack on the Morrison, President Andrew Jackson dispatched Commodore James Biddle to Asia, first to establish a trade treaty with China, and then to conduct an audience with the Shogun and open diplomatic ties to Japan. Fresh from his successful treaty signing with China, Biddle arrived with two American warships. Their armaments were so overwhelming to the Japanese that the shore batteries didn't dare fire on them. But immediately, several of the largest Japanese junks, all of which were dwarfed by Biddle's ships, maneuvered in his way trying to prevent him from further entering into Edo Harbor, which is now Tokyo Harbor. Biddle was peaceful and apologetic and respectful, He weighed anchor and respectfully requested an audience, saying he had a letter to deliver from President Andrew Jackson to the emperor. Now, I gotta pause here and say it's really unclear how much the Americans understood about power dynamics in Japan and what their political system was like, because little effort was ever made by the Americans to ever negotiate with the shogun, who, of course, was the true leader of Japan at the time. Biddle allowed the Japanese to come aboard and tour his ships. His submissive and friendly attitude achieved very little to the Japanese. The Japanese officials in charge brusquely demanded Biddle to leave at once. Biddle calmly stated he'd happily leave once he was granted an audience with the representative of the emperor. Finally, the Japanese agreed to send somebody to meet with him, but they arranged the meeting on a Japanese ship in the harbor. The Americans were not permitted to set foot on land. Biddle graciously accepted, and on the next day, in full dress uniform, he and some of his sailors boarded a rowboat and proceeded to what they thought was the junk arranged for the conference. But they had the wrong boat. It was a small harbor patrol ship. And the japanese sailors were alarmed as the commodore and his boat of americans pulled up neither the japanese sailors nor the americans had an interpreter with them thinking he was going to meet the delegation biddle tried to step from his rowboat onto this japanese ship and a japanese sailor roughly shoved him back into the boat then he threateningly drew a samurai sword biddle immediately returned to his ship thinking the delegation had decided to snub and insult him. For his part, the shogun ordered gifts sent to the commodore before he left, assuring him the guard would be punished, but Biddle left Japan without any more attempts at diplomacy. The perceived insult stoked American fury like nothing else had. In Japan, in contrast, it offered them a sense of security. It convinced many Japanese leaders that Westerners, Americans in particular, could be easily handled, just shoved away. The relationship between America and Japan deteriorated again only two years later when yet another American whaler, this time it was a ship called the Lagoda, wrecked off the coast of Hokkaido. Fifteen American survivors were taken prisoner. They were tied up and thrown into cramped cells. Three of the men died, one by suicide and two from malnutrition, though the Japanese insisted they had been sick. The Japanese suspected they were spies or, even worse, missionaries. But after several weeks, they became convinced that the Americans truly were just castaways, and they allowed them to leave with the Dutch, just as the other American castaways had been. Interestingly, the Japanese thought they were being really lenient and accommodating to these foreigners. I mean, according to their law, they executed any foreigners who showed up on their shores. So to house them and feed them and arrange safe passes home seemed to them like the height of courtesy. The necessity of detainment was simply... A way for Japan to secure its safety. It hadn't occurred to them that the Americans would have been angered by these small exchanges. But resentment in America continued to grow and plans began to develop to take a stronger stance against this backward, insolent Pacific nation. Meanwhile, in the U.S., at the age of 25, John Manjiro had found success. With the help of his adoptive father, he had managed to be placed on the crew of a whaling ship. After two years, he returned to Massachusetts with $350 in his pocket, which is roughly equivalent to $10,000 by today's standards, so not a small sum of money. He adored America, his family, and the life he'd carved out for himself, but his thoughts often returned to his mother and brothers and sisters and the life he'd been ripped from in Japan. He was determined to return, regardless of the risk. As he made arrangements to find passage back to his homeland, word came out of the recently acquired Californian territory that gold had been discovered not far from the small coastal town of San Francisco. Never one to pass up on an opportunity or adventure, Monjiro sailed to California, hiked into the mountains, and after just a few furious months of prospecting, managed to extract $600 worth of gold dust, which was a pretty amazing amount of money for a few months' work. Manjiro booked passage to Honolulu, where he was reunited with his old friends and fellow castaways. He told them about his plan to return to Japan. Finally, two of them decided to risk returning home as well, and the three Japanese men bought a small boat and arranged with a whaling captain to take them and their little boat to Japan. In February of 1851, they arrived off the coast of Okinawa, a small island in an archipelago that tails off Japan's southern coast. Manjiro and his two friends were immediately arrested. A year later, in 1852, the head of the Dutch East India Company sent a letter to the shogun in Edo. Word had reached the Dutch traders that the Americans were concocting yet another trip to Japan. He wrote, quote, According to these rumors, an envoy will be sent with a letter from the President of the United States to the Emperor of Japan. The envoy will ask that one or two Japanese ports be open to trade, and that coaling conveniences be provided for steamships en route from California to China. End quote. The Dutch weren't the only voice of warning, either. India also sent word to Japan that the Americans were hatching some scheme to coerce Japan to open its doors. This, of course, was nothing all that new. The Americans were trying once again to petition for trading rights. Their desire for coal, though, was a little confusing. Didn't North America have coal? Why would they need to import it? But the shogun, a man named Tokugawa Ieyoshi, was distracted by personal health problems and seems to have completely ignored the warning. The memory of Biddle's trip must have mollified any fears the shogun and the ruling Japanese had. Maybe the next American could be pushed out of Edo Harbor with a single shove, just like the last one. But the American's plans would not be pushed aside so lightly. The U.S. had learned from Biddle's experience seven years before, and they adjusted their tactics accordingly. It's now commonly taught that the Americans' primary goal was to open Japan for lucrative trade, but Japan had something else they wanted much more. Coal. The Industrial Revolution had revolutionized naval technology, along with everything else. By the mid-19th century, America's naval fleet was slowly being transformed. The newest ships to enter service still had the iconic tall sails and rigging that had been on naval vessels for centuries, but they also sported tall cylindrical smokestacks and, amidships huge round paddle wheels that turned the seas white. These were the first steamships, and they were changing the world. Steamships were faster, and their speed more reliable than sailing ships. They could sail at speed directly into the wind. To naval navigators of the day, this was miraculous. The only problem was, in order to create the steam to turn their oversized paddle wheels, they went through a lot of coal. The reason the new steam frigates still had sails was because it was generally impossible to get across an entire ocean, especially the huge Pacific Ocean, and back home without loading up with coal along the way. The United States liked the prospect of opening a new trade market in Japan, but they were way more excited by trading opportunities in China. In order to trade with the Chinese efficiently with their new steamships, though, they needed to set up coaling stations across the Pacific. The recently established relationship with the Kingdom of Hawaii had given the Americans one coaling station in the Pacific, but they needed another reliable source in the Western Pacific. Coal was Japan's most plentiful natural resource, almost their only natural resource, really. And those heaps of coal just so happened to lie right on the route to China. The president of the United States at the time was Millard Fillmore. He was determined to send a squadron of ships to the Pacific to establish diplomatic ties with the Japanese. Their primary goal was, of course, Japan's coal, but they were also to demand better treatment for shipwrecked American sailors and to request a trade agreement. Like any political plan, it was met with mixed opinions. One U.S. senator complained it was an unnecessary show of force, something for the bloated and restless military to occupy their time. Secretary of State Daniel Webster, though, called Perry's mission a great national movement and one of the most important ever. One journalist was less enthused about the plan. This excerpt is from the New York Times in February 24th, 1852. And I have to pause and say that one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is going searching through these old newspapers because they're awesome and hilarious, and I really desperately wish we still wrote news like this. Quote, A fleet composed of several steamers backed by a frigate and one or two corvettes is by no means a peaceful demonstration. And we fear that the effect of the arrival of these ships in the waters of Japan will be to frighten the poor Japanese out of their seaport towns and out of their wits at the same time, so that it will be impossible to bring them to terms in good faith. They may be driven by their alarm into a treaty of some sort, which they will feel at perfect liberty to violate as soon as the vessels of war shall have been removed. Unquote. What's amazing is how prophetic the New York Times was, at least about the fear. In 1853, fishermen off the shore of Honshu started noticing strange vibrations in the water. Their unease gave way to sheer terror when four massive black ships came into view. Two of the ships were spewing black smoke into the sky. Most alarming, they were making headway against the wind. It was the American squadron. The two sailing ships of the squadron, the USS Plymouth and the USS Saratoga, were being towed by the steamships Mississippi and Susquehanna, which is how they could go against the wind. The fishermen fled to the shore as fast as they could and sent word to Edo ahead of the four behemoth frigates. Their warning rushed through Japan and it caused a panic. The Japanese had long been nervous of foreign ships invading their waters and had confronted them several times, but this was something new entirely. These ships were, without a doubt, warships, and the most massive any of them had ever seen. The USS Susquehanna Perry's flagship was nearly 260 feet in length, which was more than 20 times larger than Japan's largest ship. One Japanese man described them as staggeringly large apparitions. Another said they loomed as large as mountains, and that they sailed as swiftly as birds. Worst of all, the Japanese had never before seen a steamship with their awe-inspiring smokestacks, massive paddle wheels, and the unnatural reverberating rumbles that emanated from their hulls. The Japanese could only speculate as to their destructive capacity. They seemed to have a lot of guns. The ships were painted black, just like the invading Mongol fleets of the 13th century. It's unlikely the Americans knew that Japan had a particular fear of ships painted black, They even had folk songs that talked about the black ships coming to invade the islands. So this was an extremely effective way to terrorize Japan. Any one of these ships could lay waste to any city along the shore, and there were four of the ships. The Japanese could only have interpreted the squadron as a battle fleet come to invade their country. The American ships neared a warning sign posted prominently outside of Edo Bay, In French, it read, Depart immediately and dare not anchor. The Americans passed it without slowing down. Word spread to the surrounding area for warriors to assemble in Edo, and for all males aged 15 to 60 to join the local militia. Within hours, Japanese soldiers poured into the city wearing ancient samurai armor sporting a wide variety of weapons, everything from halberds to katanas to muskets. They manned the few batteries of cannon that were dotted along the bay, but they correctly guessed that firing on the ships would have no effect and start a battle they could not win. All the cities lining Edo Bay were thrown into chaos as soldiers rushed in and desperate citizens fled. A Japanese observer wrote, Edo seethed like a cauldron. Rumors of an immediate action added horror to the horror-stricken. The tramp of war horses, the clatter of armed warriors, the noise of carts, the parade of firemen, the incessant tolling of bells, the shrieks of women, the cries of children, dinning all the streets of a city, more than a million souls made confusion worse confounded. End quote. The man who wrote that, Nitobe Inatso, went on to say, Commoners are evacuating the young and old of their family, and they themselves are planning to flee to the country as soon as fighting breaks out. "...government officials whose state of consternation is indeed beyond description seem to have been really awed by the military might of the formidable foreign fleet. Mothers were seen flying with children in their arms, and men with mothers on their backs." So, the New York Times' prediction that the poor Japanese would be frightened out of their wits was fully realized. And it was exactly the response Commodore Matthew Perry had wanted. Matthew Perry. Okay, I'm sorry. It was a necessary Friends reference. It will be the last one, I promise. Matthew Galbraith Perry was a veteran of the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War. He was an aggressive and decisive commander. In the Mexican-American War, he'd forced a quick surrender from the Mexicans at the Battle of Veracruz by bringing his ships in really precariously close to the shoreline and just battering them with withering broadsides from really close range. In 1832, he had sailed an American squadron into the Bay of Naples in what is today Italy. The King of Sicily had refused to pay these hefty debts he owed to American merchants. So Perry came in with his ships, aimed at the king's palace, and threatened to start firing if the king didn't pay up immediately. The king quickly obliged. It was just kind of part of who Perry was. He was dour and serious. One of his sailors described him, quote, as if suffering from a permanent toothache, end quote. I love that description. Unlike the American Commodore that preceded him, who was Commodore Biddle, Perry had no time to waste on pleasantries or politeness. He was brusque, rude, pompous, and determined to show the Japanese what he called his overwhelming superiority and to use what he called Yankee diplomacy. He kind of reminds me of the stereotypes of Americans held by other people in the world today. You know, that brash, rude, insensitive person who kind of thinks the world owes him something? That was Perry, to a T. To illustrate this, listen to a passage from his journal. He wrote in third person, which is somehow just perfectly fitting. Quote, The policy of the Commodore is to assume a resolute attitude toward the Japanese government. End quote. That's a pretty tame way of saying what he was going to do. Elsewhere, he was less euphemistic about his plan. He intended to, quote, Alarm the authorities and induce them to give a more favorable answer to my demands. End quote. Remembering Commodore Biddle's ineffective courtesy, he wrote that he planned to demand as a right and not to solicit as a favor those acts of courtesy which are due from one civilized nation to another to allow none of those petty annoyances which have been unsparingly visited upon those who had preceded them. It's kind of ironic that the guy would talk about courtesy that was due him, because he didn't think he owed anyone else an ounce of courtesy. And the thing is, his approach was not all posturing. Perry was perfectly ready to retaliate if the Japanese so much as drew a sword. In the worst case scenario, he could simply position his ships outside of the range of Japan's antiquated cannons and shell the city until they capitulated. So the four American frigates formed into a battle line at the mouth of Edo Harbor, which was some 60 miles south of the city. They weighed anchor. Perry ordered his ships to fire away from the city into the sea as a salute to the Japanese, but the Japanese would never have interpreted them as anything but warning shots, and Perry had to know that. The guns fell silent, and Perry felt his initial impression had been made, and night settled on Edo Harbor. The American sailors watched as Japanese militiamen started amassing along the shoreline. Some 5,000 of them were deployed from Edo to the nearby city of Urago, which is where the ships had anchored. As night fell, the land was dotted with so many fires that one American sentry noted the campfires looked like a swarm of fireflies. But not all of the fires were campfires. The Japanese had lit huge bonfires along the routes towards Edo and crucial routes towards the Shogun's Palace to block the roads from any invaders. After a really tense night, the Japanese sent an envoy to the American ships. The Japanese messenger, who was a policeman from Uraga, first demanded the American ships leave immediately, of course. Perry scoffed at the suggestion, and the messenger then directed the U.S. fleet to Nagasaki, as that was the only port Japan allowed for trade and interaction with any other nations. Perry calmly but firmly said they would stay exactly where they were until he met with the representative of the emperor. Perry also informed the envoy that he would be meeting with Japanese officials on land, not in the bay, like Biddle. He then abruptly ended the conversation, telling the flustered messenger to report back to his leaders, and from then on, the Americans would refuse to negotiate with anyone but an imperial officer. Several more Japanese officials attempted to negotiate with Perry aboard the Susquehanna, but Perry refused to meet with them, telling his officers to send them back. He continued to fire his salute broadsides into the sea. The shogun was a man by the name of Tokugawa Ieyoshi, He was already prone to debilitating health problems, and he had suffered a heart stroke, probably a mild heart attack, only a few weeks before, and he was slowly dying. This left his chief counselor, Lord Abe Masahiro, and the Shogun's Council of Elders, which Abe led, to deal with the crisis. Abe had been the one to receive the warnings from India and Holland about the impending American fleet. He had long felt Japan needed to build up its defenses against foreign naval power, so he was dismayed but not surprised at the Americans' arrival. After heated debate among the Council of Elders, Abe finally directed the governors of Uraga and Edo to negotiate with the Americans, but in the city of Uraga, not near the capital. Perry agreed to the meetings, and on July 14th, Perry's ships carefully aimed their cannons toward Uraga and were ordered to general quarters, the highest state of readiness. Ordering a ship to quarters is a bit like telling the sailors to hold their finger on the trigger. With the city and the Japanese soldiers lining the shoreline in their sights, Perry and 300 American sailors and marines started rowing toward the shore. This took some guts on Perry's part. His men were well-armed and everything, but once they were on land, they stood no chance against the thousands of wary Japanese soldiers who stood at readiness. Perry had insisted the Navy band accompany him, and they played American anthems as the Americans marched toward the meeting in the city. Always one to make an impression, Perry had handpicked two of his tallest and most muscular Navy stewards, who were all black, to act as his bodyguards. The Japanese had never seen black men before, and they gawked. The black sailors dwarfed even the other Americans, who in turn dwarfed most of the Japanese men. Perry was greeted by the governors of Edo and Uraga, who introduced themselves as representatives of the emperor. They bowed deeply, and Perry simply looked at them. He casually took a seat in a nearby chair and said nothing, waiting for them to begin the negotiations. This was the height of insult to the Japanese, and Perry likely knew exactly what he was doing. So the negotiations didn't improve from there, The governors couldn't initially understand the Japanese of the interpreter the Americans had brought with them, and they didn't have an interpreter who spoke English. Eventually, they had to resort to translating from Japanese to Dutch, and then from Dutch to English by an American sailor who knew Dutch. This had to be an agonizingly slow process, and the double translation likely garbled a lot of the conversation. Perry presented the governors with President Fillmore's letter to the emperor. Fillmore's letter to the emperor began, Great and good friend! Fillmore's letter introduced Perry and assured their only intention was to establish trade and a good relationship with Japan. He wrote, The Constitution and laws of the United States forbid all interference with the religious or political concerns of other nations. I have particularly charged Commodore Perry to abstain from every act which could possibly disturb the tranquility of your imperial majesty's dominion, end quote. The Japanese could only have gawked at this hypocrisy. The past few days had been anything but tranquil, and Perry's conduct deeply disturbing. Perry then presented his own letter, which was far less genial than Fillmore's. In it, he voiced outrage at Japanese treatment of shipwrecked American sailors and implied that if others were similarly mistreated in the future, American steamships could be in Japanese water within two weeks, which was a huge bluff, but the Japanese had no way of knowing that. Perry also insisted Japan open itself for trade and that it provision American ships with coal. He reiterated peaceful intentions But the underlying implication was that if the Japanese were unwilling to meet America's demands, the Americans were willing to start firing on their capital city. To drive home the threat, Perry presented the governors with two white flags. He explained that if ever the unfortunate circumstance of fighting arose between Japan and the United States, the Japanese would only need to raise the flags and American guns would immediately stop firing so his message was extremely clear. The governors politely informed Perry the only reason he'd been received outside of Nagasaki was to avoid insulting the President of the United States, and then told him, as this is not a place wherein to negotiate with foreigners, so neither can conferences or entertainment be held. Therefore, as letter has been received, you can depart. Perry glibly informed them that he'd leave within two or three days but he told them he would return within a year's time to receive the Emperor's response to the president. Alarmed, the governors asked if he intended to return with the same number of ships. He responded that he'd be returning with the full squadron. These four were only a portion of it, but he didn't specify how many ships that meant. Before Perry left, he presented the governors with several gifts, wine, seeds, and several other small items. Then he and his escort returned to their ships. The ships lingered in Edo Bay for three more days. At one point, the Mississippi brazenly sailed deeper into the bay, within 10 miles and easy sight of Edo. The Japanese breathed a sigh of relief when it returned to the other American ships and breathed even easier when all four ships sailed south. The night the Americans left, a large crowd of soldiers gathered near the shoreline at Uraga and burned the gifts Perry had presented to the governors. Lord Abe Masahiro and the rest of the Shogun's Council were mired in anxiety and disagreements over what to do about this crisis. Many of the Council of Elders felt that they should rush to arm themselves and prepare to attack the American fleet when it returned the following year. They were deeply insulted and felt the fat American Commodore had dishonored the country and their emperor. But Abe and others were more pragmatic, and they knew that there was little they could do in a year to defend against such advanced and well-armed ships, especially if Perry's warning about bringing more ships came true. To complicate things further, 11 days after the Americans' departure, Shogun Tokugawa Ieyoshi finally died the council kept the death secret. Tokugawa's son and heir Iesada was mentally handicapped. He could barely speak and barely walk, and the shogun's council considered him completely incapable of handling this crisis. Meanwhile, some daimyo had learned the shogun had been warned about the American fleet and were furious that he had done nothing to protect the country. If they learned of his death, or of his heir's disabilities, it was likely some of them would try to overthrow the Tokugawa dynasty altogether. The threat of civil war was looming in Japan. Abe inadvertently made the situation worse when he polled Japan's daimyo about their opinions on the matter. This was unprecedented. The daimyo had traditionally never weighed in on national policy. Their responses were also really unhelpful and inconclusive. Roughly, a third wanted war, a third to capitulate to the Americans, and a third offered these vague, non-committal responses. Not only was the poll not helpful, the daimyo correctly inferred that the shogunate was weak and possibly vulnerable. This put Abe in an impossible situation. To quote historian George Pfeiffer, "...to acknowledge incapacity to resist American aggression would be to invite the ruin of the Tokugawa house." To resist, on the other hand, would be to invite the destruction of the empire. End quote. The council just didn't know what to think of this American threat. What was clear was that Perry seemed perfectly willing to start firing if his demands weren't met, so they saw only two options. They could either capitulate to Perry's demands, or they could fight. They knew they couldn't build up defense in time for Perry's return, and he could level Edo without losing a single man but capitulating meant ending Japan's long-held isolation. It would make the shogun look weak and invite other nations to use the same tactics. The council was racked with indecision because ultimately, they knew nothing about this upstart country that wasn't yet 80 years old. But there was someone in Japan who knew America intimately. After being arrested, Manjiro and his two friends had endured months of questioning. They were finally turned over to the daimyo that ruled over their village. He permitted them to return, but they were initially forbidden from ever leaving the town again, put under kind of a house arrest. Nearly 12 years after he last left, Manjiro was joyously reunited with his mother and siblings. The daimyo was really impressed with Manjiro, seems like everybody who met him was, and he hired him to start lecturing at a local school about his world travels and adventures. The daimyo eventually granted Manjiro a title, elevating him to the elite ruling warrior class making him a samurai. He was also permitted to choose a family name. At the time, lower classes in Japan were permitted only one given name. Manjiro had risked his life and spent years dreaming of returning to his hometown. He named himself after his city, Nakahama Manjiro. Lord Abe learned of Manjiro's experience and summoned him to report to the council. When he arrived in Edo, the leaders bombarded him with questions about America. Speaking more frankly than any of them might have expected, because, you know, he was raised in America, after all, Manjiro told the Council he felt Japan's isolation was damaging and backward. Worse, it was perceived by the outside world to be inhumane and irrational. He expressed his consternation at the extraordinary fuss that had been made in response to Perry's visit. He assured the Council that Perry's squadron wasn't made up of warships, just ships used for exploration, because he couldn't imagine that the Americans would send warships. Of course, he wasn't in Edo when Perry was there. But he insisted the Japanese had wildly overreacted. He patiently described the United States in intricate detail, and the council listened in rapt attention. No doubt thinking of his American family, Manjiro spoke glowingly of his adopted country. He said Americans were born to be gentle, that they were physically perfect and beautiful, virtuous and generous and... And do no evil. They hold loyalty and modesty in high esteem. I don't know what was going on in Fairhaven, Massachusetts at the time, but that is some pretty glowing praise of America. Majiro's profile of the Americans couldn't have contrasted more with the unabashed pompousness and disdain that Perry had shown. But many of the council breathed with relief. Perhaps America's intentions were peaceful after all. Some of the council were suspicious of Manjiro's hyperbolic praise for the Americans. I mean, how could you not be? The guy used the word perfect to describe them. So they suspected he might be a spy. Regardless, the young samurai's testimony managed to bring most of the council to a consensus. Because the Americans' intentions seemed genuine, and they couldn't be bested in combat anyway, there would be no war when Perry returned. Perry's fleet spent the winter and spring, first in Okinawa and then Hong Kong but they returned to Edo much sooner than had been promised on March 8, 1854. The promise Perry did fulfill, though, was bringing more firepower. No fewer than 10 American warships, roughly a quarter of the entire United States Navy, was seen steaming toward Edo Bay. Though both sides remained wary of each other, there was none of the panic that had seized Edo on Perry's first arrival. Perry, with his trademark bravado, strong-armed the Japanese negotiations, coercing them into granting more concessions than they had initially intended. Manjiro was involved as well, but he was unable to directly participate in the discussions as a translator because some of the lords on the Shogun's Council didn't trust him. He still was able to give Lord Abe valuable insight and advice. And on March 31st, 1854, the Americans and the Japanese signed an agreement known as the Treaty of Kanagawa. The treaty granted Perry nearly everything he had wanted. It ensured peace between Japan and the United States. Japan agreed to open the ports of Shimoda and Hakodate for trade with the Americans and agreed to allow foreign merchants freedom of movement within those cities. An American consulate was established, and most importantly to the Americans, the Japanese agreed to provision American ships with coal, food, and other supplies. The Treaty of Kanagawa broke Japan's seal of isolation. Within four years, Japan had signed similar treaties with France, Russia, Great Britain, and another with the United States, granting them even more concessions. In the short term, both sides were satisfied. The Japanese, and especially Lord Abe, were relieved they managed to navigate this precarious situation and come out at the other side without having fired a shot. Perry was thrilled at his success, and so was Congress, who, out of gratitude for his service to the United States, granted him a gift of $20,000, which was a preposterous amount of money at the time. Manjiro, in particular, was thrilled the two countries he had called home had finally been connected. But internally, the system that had ensured over two centuries of Japanese peace was destabilizing. Perry's aggressive approach and advanced technology prompted Japanese leaders to lift the severe restrictions on military strength to try to catch up with the rest of the world. As individual daimyo began building up their own local forces, their loyalty to the relatively weak shogunate started to wane. There was also outrage from across the country at the shogun's weakness and capitulation to the foreign barbarians. A political movement reoriented power back into the hands of the emperor who had opposed the treaties. Ultimately, Japan was thrust into a violent period of transition called the Bakumatsu, or Closing Curtain. A civil war broke out in the years following the Treaty of Kanagawa, and in 1868, the final Tokugawa shogun abdicated his powers to the 17-year-old Emperor Meiji, who moved from Kyoto to Edo. Meiji renamed the city Tokyo, meaning Eastern Capital and he ushered in a long period of modernization and progress for the country now known as the Meiji Restoration. Japan's exposure to the outside world brought progress and change, but it brought to close over two centuries of uninterrupted peace. In 1860, Japan sent an official delegation to the United States of America. They sailed across the Pacific on board the Konrin Maru, the first steamship in Japan's navy which was recently purchased from Holland. Virtually no Japanese sailor had experience on the open ocean, though, and so during a storm, most of the crew, including the ship's captain and admiral, got violently seasick. A friendly samurai serving as the delegation's translator willingly took command of the ship and brought it to port in San Francisco safely. It was Nakahama Manjiro. One American sailor who had participated in Perry's expedition wrote, quote, Manjiro knew the American people. He was the channel through which, by a kind of preordination, American ideas filtered into Japan. End quote. One Japanese contemporary wrote that Manjiro, quote, contributed more than any other person in the opening of Japan, end quote. The terrifying ordeal Manjiro had endured as a 14-year-old starving castaway set him on a path that would radically alter not only his life, but influence the relationship between the two countries he considered his own. And today, in Ashizuri Uwakai National Park in southern Japan, a large statue of the samurai reminds people of his legacy. Perry's legacy would be more complicated for Japan, and understandably so. A bust of Perry sits outside the historic site where the Treaty of Kanagawa was signed, but there has remained a residual resentment of Perry's bullying tactics. The impression Perry left behind helped form the Japanese impression of Americans, in part as violent, oppressive, and willing to intimidate to get their way. That kind of cultural impression doesn't easily fade, and 90 years later, when the Japanese were convinced the Americans were again trying to bully them, they decided to respond in force, sparking the Pacific conflict of World War II. The end of Japan's self-imposed isolation and the subsequent changes are generally celebrated today. But it raises some interesting questions. Even if Perry hadn't shown up, how long would it have been possible for Japan to stay closed off? If the progress they experienced afterward was good, were Perry's actions and the subsequent violent conflict in Japan justified? It raises questions about religion, trade, self-determination, and much more. These questions are ultimately unanswerable, but pondering them can help us understand our world more, and perhaps help us improve it. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Stu. Thank you so much for listening today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, please let me know at Stu, S-T-U at backtrackhistory.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Stu Backtrack or simply go onto backtrackhistory.com, our website, to leave a message. We're really excited to announce that our podcast is now officially available on Google Play and iTunes. Finally. So feel free to go and subscribe using either of those two services. Now, as you might imagine, these podcasts take quite a lot of time and energy to produce. Also, it takes a ton of patience, long-suffering, and support from my beautiful wife, Chelsea. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting us on patreon.com so we can keep these coming out every week. The link is patreon.com backslash backtrackhistory, or simply go to our website at backtrackhistory.com and see the link in the sidebar. Using Patreon, you can donate as little as a dollar per show or even a dollar per month to support us and help keep us going. I really appreciate your support and consideration. In our next podcast, we return to Japan, this time with a daredevil American pilot and his crazy plan to make retribution for the attack on Pearl Harbor. His name was James Doolittle. We'll see you next time.